Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, Real Men Shed Tears, The Man in the Mirror, and The Battle Within. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. So Andrew, you just grabbed some of my banana bread. <laughs> I and, did. And you specifically said that you're not a baked goods guy. But we have banana bread in the studio today, folks. And yeah. Andrew said not to bring it up because I bring it up every week. It's but, true. But Judy works so hard. Why would she? It? She appreciates it. And this think. is a free sponsorship opportunity for her. Yeah, Judy's Baked Goods. Dot <laughs> com. <laughs> so speaking of moms, mm-hmm. my mom has been here for the last ten days. How has that been, John? Yeah, I never thought you'd ask. <laughs> so my mom lives in South Carolina. Uh huh. So everyone's wondering. Oh, I didn't know Joan was American. Well, stop, you judgmental people. Um, I'm actually half American. I have How my, does that work? I have a dual citizenship. So do you know where I got my dual citizenship? Well, how could you possibly? <laughs> <laughs> do you even want me to be here for this conversation? Or do you want to just ask yourself Have we question? ever mentioned that we never talk at all about what we're going to yes, say in the intro? Yes, we have. Okay, so that's coming across. Um, the Oklahoma building. Hmm. Yeah, like the famous Oklahoma building that uh, Timothy McVeigh um, decided to blow up. Wow. All those years ago. So your mom's been here. Yeah, it's been here for 10 days. And um, and that's always that's always a great thing. So one of the big obstacles when my mom comes, and I told her we were going to be talking about her, so, so I'm going to keep it positive. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's going to listen. Yeah, she's going to listen. And I truly love my mom. But one of the big obstacles is we have just a wildly, wildly different taste in um, television. Okay. And so, you know, typically we're quite active during the day. And uh, we'll go out and, and I've shown her all, all the island sites and we'll go, we'll go have like amazing meals and on the oceanfront to sites all across the island. But then in the evening when we come back, we're tired and we want to watch a show. And usually it's like a big, like she's a Hallmark fan. Oh, okay. no. So, so yeah, like you're wondering how wildly different we are. You, you know what though? <laughs> I'm going to interject. Please do. Not that far apart because you've oh. got a fair amount of cheese in you. <laughs> so, I do I do love cheese. So I do see where that came from. And yeah, Andrew's referring to to the cheese mostly in my you know how we do like our three intros at the beginning where yeah. we do like on today's episode. I often come up with ones that rhyme. <laughs> yeah. Or have like alliteration or like all the words start with a D and Andrew's always just shakes his head. He's like, nope. Yeah, he tried to go with the war of heart today. <laughs> After saying the buck stops here, and you'll find out why those are both kind of relevant, but got immediately vetoed. And I'm so glad you did, because those are so bad. Like, as I hear you say them to me, I'm like, what was I thinking? Um, you, probably, you probably all remember I used to be a preacher, and so preachers are known for their cheese and alliteration and rhyming abilities. Anyways... So this was a big this was a big deal because Angie and I are very serious about our TV watching. We've talked about some of the great shows that that we watch: Mad Men, Breaking Bad, all those kind of shows. My mom's Shark not Tank. a Mad Men, Breaking Bad, <laughs> Shark Tank, you know, kind of person whatsoever. So we're like, what are we gonna do? And we're not watching any freaking Hallmark. In fact, she loves Chesapeake Shores. That's her favorite show. Now, you laugh, Andrew, because you must have heard of this show. No, I haven't. That's why I laugh. It just sounds so perfect. Well, did you know that it is filmed on Vancouver Island, Andrew? I had no idea. Wow, that blows my mind. (laughs) Chesapeake Shores? You mean I could be on set of (laughs) Chesapeake Shores? Yeah, you could have been on set. But yeah, it's filmed in like the Parksville, Qualicum type area. And actually last summer when 
my mom came to visit i was a good son and took her around to all the locations wow now they don't film in the summertime but uh we were able to find out like where the coffee shop was and she was just in her element perfect and yeah chesapeake shorts check it out if you're a hallmark fan it is locally filmed and uh it's cheesy as you can imagine yeah so the basically the first two characters introduced in the show like if they're attractive at all they're gonna end up together by the end of the first episode <laughs> we yeah. all know how it's gonna end so it may seem like i'm making fun of your mother right now which i've never even met her oh. and i'm about to you are she's about to come to the studio after this yeah and then she will probably listen to this later and think this is what a dickhead. yeah exactly <laughs> but uh everyone is has the right to to like what they like yeah. i just i wonder what it is about hallmark television shows or are they tv movies I, i'm not exactly sure but what it is that is alluring to your mother and people like her hallmark for my mom comes down to one thing my mom is um she has her she has her doctorate degree in counseling mm. so she's a counselor um and so ever all the listeners are like oh this this makes so much more sense the way john <laughs> is the way he is but um yeah she's a counselor and so what she said to me one time is she spends all day basically we think we think it's deep to sit here and, and spend two hours once a week talking to people about um, some of the pivotal moments of their life. That's that's her career and the, the darkness in the darkness and and it's it's very intense. And so when she goes home in the evening, she needs to unwind and escape. Mm-hmm. And so what a better way to escape than something that is complete opposite. I mean, yeah. there's no basis in reality <laughs> um, in Hallmark as we know. Um, the lines are cheesy. The, the the relationships would never work that way. Nothing works out quite that way. So for her, it's escape. And she's well aware of it. And mm-hmm. she's okay with it. She's like, I realize. I realize. I, I know what you're saying. I know it's cheesy and silly and the acting's terrible. But you know what? For me, I can escape. It's my self-care. And then I'm able to go back and, and be there for the people the next day. So now don't you feel a little guilty, Andrew? No, not about, at all. Okay, fair um, it, But yeah, I get it, though. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, I get it. I didn't, you might try see, it. I didn't judge, John. No, you didn't. Uh, although you have used the word vindictive shark eyes, the phrase vindictive <laughs> shark eyes to describe me. I'm, I'm not actually that judgy or vindictive. Well, at least I try to be. We're, we're, we all have our unconscious biases. But it, it's, good, it's good to understand w- why she is drawn to it. It's her little version of utopia. And it is. people need escape. It's, yeah. um, it's a very common thread in our society is that everyone has their own little versions of escape mm-hmm. And they can be various degrees of of holistically healthy for us because sometimes it can be narcotics or yeah for sure or alcohol or other self inflicted extreme pain. exercise work I mean yeah yeah and on today's episode we talked about uh, a various degree of that with Wade who went through I would say. 30 years of his life yeah. neglecting his emotions and using various forms of distraction and, and physical punishment mm-hmm. to poorly deal with PTSD and including something trauma. he called the death race. Yeah. The death race. <laughs> yeah. And, and the first two times he did it, he, <laughs> yeah, he's done it more than once. <laughs> yeah. But then he, he was part of a team so that he, right. he didn't feel like he'd truly no. de- done the death justice yeah because it's 120 kilometers and he did like 20 kilometers because he did it with five or six people yeah we said with 
with Linda and Shauna, we were talking about like doing death better. So it's just a different version of doing <laughs> yeah. doing death better, right? Yeah, for it's sure. Doing the death race better. So then he went back and did it twice himself. Yeah. For with like yeah. tens of thousands of feet of elevation gain and yeah. just punishing, and it was his only form of solace from the deep pain that he felt inside and the shame, especially. We got to shame today, people. Big surprise. Oh, John and Andrew talked about shame. <laughs> Guess who they brought up? <laughs> Come on, John. Who? Come on. Guess who we brought up? Shame. Oh, oh yeah, Miss uh, Brene Brown. There we go. <laughs> Does she come up in every episode? Yeah, and then and as soon as uh, our our amazing guest today, Wade, brought it up, John just said, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, Andrew so. was about to kick me. Like, don't go off into a big thing about how Brene Brown is so essential in our life because we bring it up every episode. We're really not trying to get her as a guest, although. Can you imagine? We're trying to get her as a guest. Yeah, Brene, if you're listening, come on. Yeah. I mean, it's about time. Our dozens of listeners are are hearing about your work they're, every week. They're ready for you, Brene. <laughs> yeah, and and so yeah, th- this this episode with with Wade is, it, I mean, once again vaulted in the deep end, and an hour and a half later, it felt like in many many ways coming up for air. Uh, the 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 ability for him to to share such deep raw vulnerable things with two guys he really kind of just met you know 10 minutes before mm-hmm. is astonishing i mean th- that's one of the true privileges of, of of what we do um with with hosting a podcast is often the guests we don't we don't have a have a strong relationship with them beforehand and then all of a sudden we go through two hours of some of the key moments of their life and it's just yeah mind-boggling and the connection that we had in this room just reminds me and inspires me and it makes me want to say you to everyone listening out there you need that connection like it is so useful and therapeutic and allows you to get into a different place mentally and and like it it for me it really got my wheels turning and thinking Mm -hmm. about myself and and how i can be more aligned and and get into a place where i'm actualizing my potential and yeah that the deep important connection is is so critical in our lives and disconnect social disconnect social isolation is i find one of the most harmful things in our society oh absolutely absolutely and it can happen even when you have 500 followers on social media folks you could be highly disconnected 500 even like 600 maybe well i don't know about that andrew (laughs) (laughs) and so anyways we had to come up with a show with my right. mom. Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure the listeners didn't hear any of the last beautiful 10 minutes because they were like, what show did you watch? Yeah. It wasn't Hallmark. It was Hallmark-y in, in terms of like, it, you know, it's it's definitely not like Breaking Bad where, mm-hmm. where you may you might see some uns, unsightly things for, for my my very conservative Christian mother. <laughs> so so that's that's the standard as well. But it was a show we've we've watched in the past and in liked at the time, and we've kind of looked back, been like, oh, we were so, we were so, uh, you know, uncultured to actually like that show. Can I guess? Yeah, try, try and see Give if me, you can figure it out. Let's see let's if you make, can figure out this show that we watched. Let's make the little twenty questions action. Okay. Um, is it a comedy? Uh, yeah, it would it would be a comedy. Is it a? So it's like a dramedy. Let's be honest. Okay. okay. Is it? Was it made in the last 10 years? No. <laughs> is it on Netflix? Yeah. Yeah. So that narrows it down. <laughs> yeah. Does it star some girls? 
Is it Gilmore Girl? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I lobbed that across the plate. You get, uh, you guess that immediately. Have you seen any episodes? No. God, have I? No, you haven't. Gilmore Girl. So you no. haven't watched all seven seasons? No. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> Neither have I. <laughs> Okay, F- full disclosure, I have seen uh, every season and every every episode of Gilmore Girls. And you got right Why? back on that I'm train. Why? Because I'm an amazing husband, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Okay. Andrew, and what's her name? Andrea? And Angie, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, I was going to say your names together. It's tough. It's yeah. tough. We'll just call you guys Andrea. No. <laughs> Angie. Um, we'll both love that. <laughs> Angie said, uh, let's give this show a try. And, uh, and it was something we could enjoy together. And uh, I, th- I would say we moved on because we do roll our eyes quite a bit and stuff. But you know what? If it's Gilmore Girls or like freaking Chesapeake Shores. Gilmore Girls all I'm day, I'm throwing baby. my lot in with Lorelai and Rory. <laughs> <laughs> and their adorable banter back and forth. So that was a show and my mom loved it. So we got through 18 episodes. Can you believe that? <laughs> we got she through- was only here for 10 days. I know, man. We binged it. We got through 18 <laughs> episodes and we're still not done season one. Huh. Wow. So if she can't leave. All the Gilmore Girls fans out there that are listening right now are just blown away that this show has actually come up on our podcast. They probably never thought that would happen. And neither did I. But Andrew, don't judge. I, I'd say you go go snuggle up with Sarah tonight and watch episode one and report back. See see if your heart feels a little um, touched. See if you your your humor is activated through their witty banter. The chances of that happening are less than zero. <laughs> <laughs> less than zero. <laughs> okay. Well, there it is. So we watched Gilmore Girls and it got us through. And, and now my mom is uh, is leaving with anxiety in her heart because she does not have the show at home. And she's not about to buy them on Amazon. Hmm. And she's wondering what she's going to do for the next year now. But uh, she's going to come by the studio now because she wants to see it. Okay, let's go meet your mom. Right. And everybody else, enjoy Wade. Yeah, today we we have Wade Smith with us. Yeah, who I think I I've only just briefly met you, but uh, I think you're in the running for most interesting man in the world as uh, <laughs> former scuba diver, bomb disposal, uh, triathlete, cycle uh, racer, um, spent two decades in the Canadian military, and uh, and now a professional coach on Vancouver Island here. So you got my vote. <laughs> and, and that's literally how I first met Wade. We were sitting in like a stuffy kind of uh, well, not stuffy. Well, just a typical business sort of noon business presentation on like accounting or something. And Wade was in there and, and they always go around the room and you have to introduce yourself. This is the one time. OK, my, my 30 second pitch. And it came around to everybody and blah, blah, blah. I'm from blah, blah, blah. You know, and that was, I'm making fun of myself, really. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and when can I hand out my business card and leave? And it was one of those kind of meetings. A little, little um, negative about it. But anyways. <laughs> bitter, maybe? Yeah, a little bitter. They're good. But it came to Wade and he basically just in 30 seconds shared what you just did. And I was just like, this is the most interesting guy in the world. Like, what is he doing here? And how did he get from coaching to like the military to like, did you say underwater bomb disposal? Like, what, what, what is that? I was like, I got to know this guy. And so we went out for coffee and that's how we first met. And, uh, and, I, and once we started the podcast, he was one of the guests that I was like, we got to get on. And you've, you've, had, you've been on a very interesting journey, especially the last mm-hmm. three to five years. Very interesting. Um, but uh, maybe we want to start with 
you, you've, you've spoken on social media about a really powerful um, moment you had up on Mount Baker recently. Mm. And perhaps you could share, share what, what, uh, what that experience was like and, and what was going on there. Yeah, Mount Baker. Um, it's the it's the the peak that I always see from Cobble Hill and the, the the area where I live now. You know, look out across the the ocean towards Washington, and there, there it is. Mm-hmm. And and I've never I've never really gone up any any significant um, climbs before, but this one was special. And and um, it was organized by uh, a couple of kind of mutual friends following the the death of of a, of a of a friend of ours james butler and um james was only i think he was 28 when he when he died wow. and it was just it was just this kind of you know one of those things where i'm still not really sure about it. i'm still like confused like what exactly happened mm-hmm. and i've i've heard you know everything that's that that actually did happen he, he he was at the pool and he just didn't come up and 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 they tried to revive him and but he was like this really experienced underwater guy like he was a combat diver he was uh, becoming a clearance diver and all this stuff so when he passed away it was it was it was a big shock but he also touched so many people and a lot of men Hmm. in in a way of just getting out of the head and into the heart and he had this way about doing that and he kind of led by example so he um after he passed you know we, we we started planning this trip to remember him because he had gone up with a friend Chris um the year before because what he wanted to do was take clients up on these on these kinds of adventures going up Baker or Patagonia or you know these different mm-hmm. places and really getting deep deep with a client and and uh so we decided to honor him that way and uh James had been cremated and and uh part of his ashes were were in this kind of a yeah kind of a canister I guess yeah and um friend Steph had, had carried that up to base camp and then all the way up to the top. So there was five of us that, that went up and um, a couple of James's clients and then a couple of us that, that were coaches, uh, like friends of his. And, um, you know, that 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 climb was, was absolutely brutal for me because mm. there's the emotional stuff that you're carrying up that mountain with you. Like, it's not just the physical exertion. It's like you're you're literally carrying a part of your part of your friend that, to me, I didn't really have the time to, um, to say goodbye. Like I didn't, or I didn't think that I needed the time to say goodbye or to to really acknowledge what he had done for me and what he had who had been to me. So I carried that that weight and that burden up up the up the mountain, and when we got to the when we got to the summit it's not a very large area, the summit. And usually there's people apparently. And we were the only ones up there. So the five of us had the summit all to ourselves. And, you know, we just, we just all said a few words about James and, you know, let go of his ashes into the, into the wind up there. And it was just the most, just beautiful, iconic, fitting kind of a, a way to just, you know, forgive and to, um, love and just say goodbye and and uh, you know there's five of us up there and I I think most of us were most of us were crying mm-hmm. tears and the winds whipping so your tears are almost freezing to your face and then I remember coming when we left the mountain 
Chris, uh, Chris said, Hey, Wade, why don't you lead, lead the way back down? And, uh, I don't know, it's like a macho thing or something, but I couldn't just say, no, I'm in no condition to like, to do that right now. I don't even know where I am mm-hmm. or like, I'm, I'm from crying. No- I'm from Northern Saskatchewan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm from Northern Saskatchewan, <laughs> but also like yeah. my, like I was just like crying, you know, like yeah. my, the, when I was walking back down, the tears were just streaming down, streaming down. I, I really wasn't like present. And I started going the wrong way and we started to descend on the wrong side of the mountain. And then, and then Chris, Chris like, stop, stop, stop. I was like, whoa, 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 where am I going here? And then we had to kind of walk back up. So we had, we had, we, we added about, you know, an hour probably to our, to our, to our descent, which, which, which you don't want to be doing. Um, you want to be taking that pretty serious. So I think what it represented to me was like these kind of moments in time where, I'm able to just let go of let go of parts parts that are there that that are that I'm hanging on to. Mm-hmm. I never I never really knew until, you know, fairly recently, I guess in the last few years that I'm quite I'm quite empathic and I can really pick up energies and I can hold those energies. So if they're like evil, violent or 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 just mean or, you know, I can really hold on to those and go, "Oh, so and also sad like sadness or um i never really yeah i never realized (laughs) until until just like i said recently so where was i going with this story yeah well i (laughs) i I had a question and you started to answer it there and and it's a beautiful story and Mm -hmm. and it's so um so poignant in in the sense that you can always look back mount baker for those of you who are listening who aren't familiar from almost anywhere on Vancouver Island, as well on the on the mainland of BC and in Washington State, a huge radius, you can see Mount Baker. It's just a, a majestic peak um, volcano. Like it's a uh, it's visible from everywhere. So now you have that opportunity to look back on it and, and reflect. And and so the question that I had was, um, was it a, a cathartic experience? Like what? do you still carry any of those emotions um, or do you carry different emotions when, when observing it? And, and just for, for people who might be able to have a similar experience who are hanging on to, to repressed feelings or emotions, would you recommend doing something like that? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, in my own personal experience, how I, how I saw myself doing life was that maybe five, well, six, seven, ten years ago or more, I would have done Mount Baker as like a tick in the box, like a bucket list or however you want to look at it. And then I do it. I wouldn't get the same thing from it. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, going on a trip to Europe as a, as a young, young, young person and like not really seeing anything and just going on a big drinking binge or whatever, you know, (laughs) you don't really see it. Yeah. So it's like a tick in the box. Like, yeah, I was there um, versus like actually being there. Mm-hmm. So I think the word that comes to me, well, the word, yeah, the word is reverence. And the mountain, that mountain has been held in reverence for thousands of years by the local indigenous. And I can't remember the name, the name of it right now, but uh, the name of Mount Baker that is, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's always been held in that, in that, in that kind of regard. And it's not like this, 
huge Everest climb, like it's pretty doable for, you know, most people in, that are fit and have a little bit of mountaineering. Yeah, how tall is it? Do, do, do we have any idea? No. Okay. Oh, we, I can't remember. We can look it up. Yeah. yeah. It's not like insane, but it's like 8,000 feet or okay. something like that. Yeah. Um, pretty big for around here. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, the, the experience of, of life in general, I think can be all be summed up in that climb for me because mm-hmm. it's like about experiencing life and not just doing it to just say, Hey, I did it for ego or for mm. bragging rights or to have conversations or whatever. Hmm. And yeah, that sense of presence being there and, mm-hmm. and really being aware of, of why you're doing what you're doing, not just doing it, but doing it from purpose and, and doing it with, with a full sense of presence. One of the things that stood out to me in that, in that story, Wade, was you talking about you, the fact that you're an empath. And we, we've talked about that before in previous episodes, um, this gift of being able to sense and connect with people's deep-seated emotions. And it's, it's probably why you're such a brilliant coach. Um, but presumably, you've always been an empath. Or is this something that you just recently realized? Maybe that's the question I have. Is this, was this a recent realization or have you always known growing up in, 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 you know, northern Saskatchewan that you're an empath and you had that ability to connect deeply with people? Well, in hindsight, yeah, I can look back now and, and I, I mean, I've, I've done the work to kind of go backwards and then and back in my history and go, okay, well, where did, where, where did this all kind of begin? You know, and, and honestly, I think I was like about three years old or, or, some, or something around three when when everything kind of started to spark for me in that, in that regard. And it was this thing where my, my, my mother had been mowing the lawn and, and had, and had inadvertently turned the lawnmower over with her hand mm. to clear it, but it hadn't, the blade hadn't stopped. So she had cut off some of her fingers. They were kind of just hanging there. I was only three. Mm. And I remember that, 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 that image and that experience thinking that she was going to die. Cause that's when you're three years old. It's like, that's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, calling for help and, and kind of feeling helpless and alone. And I look at that now as like an event for me where when I see myself in pictures as a young, young kid, like, you know, five, six, seven, maybe even around eight or I was normally holding my mom's hand in the pictures. She wouldn't be in the picture because there'd be a bunch of kids and then there'd be me on this. I remember this one picture of me on the me on the edge of these kids, you know, the little gap. And then I'm holding a hand and you can't see whose, but I know it's my mom. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I became quite introverted, quite shy. And, and, uh, and I, but also had a lot of joy in me. So there was this kind of a um, dichotomy, I guess, of, 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 of the two. And I, the introversion turned out over the years the way it manifested was that I, I started stuttering mm-hmm. and it was, I don't know, I must've been 11, 12 years old, something like that. And I was still stuttering. In fact, I couldn't answer the phone. You know, that was back in the old days when we just had like the phone on the wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, and if it, if your phone rang, you answered it. It was, yeah, it's crazy yeah, I know. to think about. No caller ID, no nothing. <laughs> you right? just answered the phone and who knows, who knows who was on the other line. But you always yeah. answered it in, yeah. in a way like, hello, or you'd say something. Right. And just that word, hello, I could not get it out for the life of me. And I just remember this, this experience of, of like, 
dreading that phone. The phone would ring and I'd be the only person home, say, and it'd just be like, dung, dung. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and I'd pick it up and I'd be like, <sighs> and stuttering this thing out. And then finally, I don't know how long it would be, somebody might say something on the other end or I'd get it out and then they'd say, oh, it's your mom there, dad there, whatever. And, uh, and then, yeah, I was probably around 11, 12. Like I was pretty getting older. And I remember looking myself in the mirror and, and just, and just being like, not going to do that anymore. Not going to like live this way anymore. And this fear and this, like, yeah, I felt like encapsulated in, in this big, this bubble of fear. It was like, wow, this is ridiculous. And something happened when I looked at myself in the mirror that took me outside of that. And I started to get really a lot more kind of social and out there. And, and what I remember about it is that it was all fake. <laughs> like, mm. like I had, I had basically not given myself whatever I needed at that time. I didn't give myself, I gave myself something else that I thought I needed. Mm. I probably just needed some sort of healing, some sort of love mm. needs that just weren't being met. But I went out instead and, and just, you know, just tried to make myself as social as possible. And that's when I started partying and, and everything. And uh, and I think that was also when I kind of lost touch because what I remember about those years of being more introverted is having this this deep connection. I remember being in Candle Lake, Saskatchewan, Northern Saskatchewan. Yeah. And and uh, I used to go fishing by myself out there. And sometimes I just take out a canoe and fish for pickerel. <laughs> And I'd just be like out there by myself in this pristine, crystal clear water. And the sun is just glistening on the waves. Sometimes you can see right down to the bottom of the lake. Wow. And, you know, surrounded by these beautiful trees. And that was, that was my spirituality at a very young age. I mean, I was doing that at, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11. Wow. And, uh, and I think I really came into a presence there at that, t- at that point. But in hindsight, I didn't know how to describe that presence. Or I didn't know who to talk to about that kind of experience. So it, it kind of got pushed aside, I think. And then when I joined the military later on in my, when I was 19, I think things just started to kind of shift for me. Like I started t- t- taking this other kind of a, um, a turn, I guess, in, in life where emotions were shut down and or even before that but yeah made a turn where i didn't experience life but i did a bunch of cool stuff right yeah but as you were saying earlier just kind of bucket list stuff to just to do it for the for the sake of doing it checklist uh, yeah 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 but repressing the the true self perhaps oh yeah so yeah, I was curious about. So we we kind of introduced you as the most uh, as the candidate for most interesting man in the world, which is a, a lofty way to introduce somebody. So <laughs> apologies for that. Don't don't feel like you have to live up to it. But no, we may title the episode that. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, we kind of glossed over some stuff, and and now we're getting back into it. So I was really curious what motivated you to join the military at yeah. that age, and. Um, and a little bit more, uh, some interest in kind of that over-socialization or, or repressing that introverted nature. 
um, by forcing yourself to be social and get out there and party and and as well have that introversion and enjoying the military lined up because I haven't been in the military and uh, but I, I would presume it's it's not really a place for for introverts it's there's a lot going on that you're there's a lot of teamwork and, and team building um, as part of it so that's kind of a, a loaded series of questions, mm-hmm. but you can take that however direction you'd like to. <laughs> sure. Well, mind you, this is like almost 30 years ago now. It's like 28 years ago. So it was a different military. So I'll, I'll speak to that era, I guess. And what I what I found was even at 15 years old, the thing that really influenced me were, were different males, other males. Like people who maybe weren't even real role models, but they were still males and I would listen to them because at 15, that's just what I did. And I remember I had this, this, this traumatic experience of like my grandmother having a heart attack right in front of our family and dying and being there, you know, watching her taking her last dying breaths. And, and I, you know, after leaving the hospital and, and, and whatnot, um, I found a little place to curl up and just cry. And I was just, I remember bawling my eyes out. Mm-hmm. And I had this, I had this um, great uncle that I didn't even know really come by and, and, and say um, something about men don't cry. Stop crying. Men don't cry. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I honestly, from that time at 15, I don't think that I cried any more than maybe twice over the next like 30 years or something. Like, yeah, yeah, almost 30 years, like close to it. And, and that suppressing that stuff, it, it, it stayed in my body. Like it, like it manifested in like physical injury and, and, uh, not, not letting it out. So when I joined the military, I was looking at these role models and I remember thinking, oh yeah, I want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like that guy. But they were all, they all had the same kind of, uh, persona and that was this hard hardened kind of been there done it and that's usually all people would like they'd introduce themselves if they're your instructor or your sergeant or something like that be like oh yeah so and so has done this this and this and this and the more you know stuff that they'd gone through the more hardship and the more like difficult courses and 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 deployments and all this stuff the more i acknowledged them the more that i admired them and i wanted to be like that but why do you think that was what what need do you think that was filling in yourself oh just to be just to be seen as 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 tough or as a man or or something like just that just that um i think it also it also gave me an excuse to to shut down those emotions because realistically i mean you, you see it in movies it's really no different. You know, those are the guys you're looking at them going, Oh wow. Like he's just got no, he just can go through this mm-hmm. experience. That's traumatic for everybody else. But for him, it's just going through it. It's just like, uh, but that's how it kind of becomes. And then the more you do, the more, the more it just becomes normal. And then people are really like curious about, Oh wow. You did like bomb disposal and all this, you know, deep sea diving and all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, but whatever. <laughs> Hmm. jumped out of planes yeah it's like yeah, mm-hmm. it kind of became whatever you know it wasn't wasn't like nourishing it wasn't nourishing my soul 
Mm. It was just, it was just ways for me to try to nourish my soul. So Wade, you haven't mentioned your father yet. And, and for me, you know, we know young men get, get a lot of their identity and self-esteem from the father. And so I'm just curious if you'd like to speak to the role that your father played in your life. Hmm. Well, like both of you, he was, he was uh, an entrepreneur and, and a brilliant entrepreneur. So we had, uh, there's a family business that we had and they, they started, he started up probably when I was quite young, maybe seven or eight years old. And, and, uh, it was a stationary, uh, supply store and then it became office equipment and, and, um, you know, kind of like monks here and, you know, little mm-hmm. mini staples kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was a family business. So I ended up working there when I got older, my, my grandma worked there. My grandpa worked, grandpa worked there. My mom worked there. My dad worked there. Like it was, hmm. it was, it was really, you know, this family kind of connection, but at the same time, they'd always bring it home. So the dinner table, what I remember is, 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 you know, maybe some arguing about, about work and talking about work. And it was just like, I think for me, I was just really wanted to connect hmm. and, and, uh, you know, he's, I think the influence there was that I didn't want to be an entrepreneur when I was young. So how I got into the military was, was that I decided I was going to be a, a police officer. So I went to college and I, and I was like, well, what do I need to do to, uh, to, uh, you know, boost my resume. So I joined the army reserve to start with and ended up going to Croatia. And I guess, I guess where my dad's influenced me through all that is that he's always supported me, like no matter what I've done. So both parents actually like mom and dad, no matter what I've chose to do, you know, even, even going to war, like I volunteered to go to Afghanistan and that was, and, uh, it was a big decision because I know that it is harder on them than it is on me. Did did you feel like you could be open about your deep sensitive nature with your father? Did he know you know how traumatic it was seeing your mom lose her fingers and some of those feelings you had? Was he aware? I don't think at the time, no. No. We've had some talks about it lately. Yeah. We go for coffee. He lives on the island here now. Oh. And uh, you know, we'll we'll have some conversations about it, but it's but it's um it's it's kind of there's an irony to it because he could always cry like at weddings, funerals, like, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the occasion, not even that, not even that, that, that's that significant, just anything. He could just really, really let go of these tears and mm-hmm. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think, I think that, uh, maybe seeing him doing that, I would, I would be more likely to, but I just, yeah, I just didn't. Yeah. Back to the the military, um, and thank you for being willing to be vulnerable and, and sharing there. In in terms of your military career, about two decades it, it ranged, and did that early training of kind of hyper masculinity and um, lack of vulnerability, or or um, trying to gain that status, like that that you saw, and and it kind of a self perpetuating cycle of the these are the guys doing the training and and they are those type a 
alphas mm-hmm. and then everyone below them is like that's how i have to be and then eventually they become the trainers and it just kind of goes and goes like that is is that how your entire career looked would you say or did you have any moments that went against that um yeah no well i mean yeah it totally changed the way that i looked at things through throughout I never meant to have a career in the military. Like I was, I was going to be a cop. That was my thing that I was going to do. Was, but when I was in the reserves, uh, there was there was a new deployment that that was just uh, on its first rotation uh, to Croatia and and to Bosnia. So it was it was an invitation for as as a reservist to try out. It was kind of like tryouts to to go with with the and be augmented with with the regular army. And I was infantry, which so I was a grunt at the time, and um, my friends were doing it. It it was an adventure. It was like wow, like we weren't doing anything as Canadian military back then, besides you know some deployments to Cyprus and things that were all coming to an end. And so this was a big deal, and I I guess I wanted to be a part of it. I want to be part of history. I wanted to go in and see if you know all this training that I'd done is you know can can be of use and Croatia in 1993 was like um, on fire like the ethnic cleansing that was happening the battles the the uh, there they they weren't in 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 a peaceful time (laughs) I'll just put it that way yeah yeah. we weren't like I went as a peacekeeper UN peacekeeper and we weren't really keeping much peace because there wasn't any peace to keep, like um, as a friend of mine wrote, and the uh, the the tour was only six months long. But about halfway through the tour, we changed locations, and we went further south in Croatia. It was hot, like it was forty-five Celsius most most time, kind of kind of hot, and uh, we were kind of in this place of limbo for, for, for a little while. Cause we're, we're, we're waiting for the politicians to allow us to take over some areas. And there was this one area in particular where there was a large, a large battle between the, the Serbs and the Croats taking place, which is called uh, Medak pocket now. And now they call it the battle of Medak pocket. And it was just really close to this little village called Medak. Hmm. And, and, uh, and Medak had been, it was a Croatian village and, they were the, the the Croats were ethnically cleansing out the the Serbians that were that were in in the area in the village that lived there. And when we when we were given permission to move into that area, the idea was to save people, you know, save women, children, the men, and put a put a stop to that ethnic cleansing mostly. And then also there was such a there was a there's a large battle with main battle tanks and artillery and mortars and like machine guns and like you name it. It was basically like trench warfare. And the kind of the culmination of that whole tour, we ended up being there with very, very limited supplies. Like um, you know, having been to Afghanistan now and going, Okay, well you can basically just get on the radio and like call for call for um backup, you know, basically. Right air support and everything else there we had nothing like we had machine guns really 
and a few tow missiles, which which is kind of a. But when you when you're operating in that kind of environment and you have the blue the blue helmet on and the white armored personnel carriers, you're not normally in a place of 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 like being in a battle. But that's what it became. So, I was with the second battalion. Um, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and from that experience there in Medak Pocket, uh, it was years and years later that they actually acknowledged acknowledged that what we had done, and and uh, we received the Governor General um, unit commendation for for that. Wow. And that was probably one of the first ones that they had given out actually mm-hmm. um, for for anything besides um, actual actual war and combat so i was 21 years old and that and that that was a huge uh, milestone in, in, in my life you know and and uh it was i think it connects with with the spirituality that i was talking about earlier you know really being connected and just being like feeling like oneness with everything on that lake fishing you know as a as a young young kid and then almost the exact opposite experience in in Croatia in Medak pocket where everything is on fire hmm. like there's people on fire there's women on fire there's um you know who were who were raped raped and then burned um and we didn't we we couldn't go in bef- before to stop it and it was just like hours like literally hours maybe if if that livestock buildings everything's dead everything's on fire and there's still the soldiers are kind of like we're replacing them right so there was a company of of princess patricia's i'll just call them ppcli a company that went in and had firefights all night long with um with the croats and then we had another and then we were coming in the next day and we were supposed to take take over the Serbs area, uh, uh, areas or sorry the, the Croatians area area so this firefight's going all night long and we're kind of like in 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 waiting to move in at first light and we're they're expecting that this is just the precursor battle to the to the big one and uh, I remember the the commanding officer coming by and we were all just crouched in our in our armored personnel carriers and you have to imagine it's just basically like a uh, metal magnesium box <laughs> mm-hmm. full of ammunition and and not much else and uh and we're just in there smoking and waiting waiting for a first light and uh you know kind of listening to everything going on and then the CEO the commanding officer comes around and says well boys I don't uh, I don't expect this all to make out make it out of here today <laughs> it, was like, it was like what <laughs> you know 21 being a, a you know you're a UN peacekeeper you're a yeah. soldier but yeah. you you know, you're not really prepared no. to, to to go into that. So when we went, when we did roll that 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 day, I don't think I was the only one that didn't that thought that we weren't all going to make it out of there. And you know, luckily, fortunately, we did. But there was the there was the aftermath of everything that they had left there, and that from that battle, they had you know they had used used people as mules, and then and then basically um, murdered them when they wouldn't carry their stuff anymore. And we had to, you know, we picked up the remains of, of the people that were left there and then, you know, did body exchanges with, it was just, it was just really like super traumatic. And I remember a friend of mine, 
um, from Regina. I remember seeing him just ball, you know, and, and he just cried and cried and cried. And I was like, it was almost like we didn't want to talk to him. Like, oh, he's lost it. He's lost it. He's lost it. Like, he's he's uh, he's no good to us anymore. Like, he's broken. And but it was right on the spot. And like when I look at that now, I go, I wish I could have just done that. I wish I would have had that in me to just let it go and just release that emotion because it was absolutely horrible. You know, it, it mm. was, it was like, yeah. So. And and that's that's what I've been thinking while listening to, you, is this kid who was an empath, who who saw his mom's mm-hmm. fingers cut off, who saw his grandmother pass away in front of him, um, decides to join the military. You know where you're going to see some of the most horrific, traumatic um, things that you could ever see, and I just I wondered like how how you were able to turn that off. I think it was a lot like looking in the mirror, like when I had done that at 12 or whatever it was and said, you're not going to do that anymore. It was like this, it was almost like a, like a tap. Mm. I'm just going to turn it off. And I didn't know at the time that it would just boil and boil and, you know, and stew inside the body and stew inside the mind and, and, and be like, um, and, 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 and be like that. But I honestly can't really answer that. Like, were you, was there shame there? Were you ashamed? That's why you shut it off? Like, oh, yeah. Like, looking in the mirror? Like, yeah, was I know. it like, I don't want to be that kid anymore? I don't want to be whatever? Yeah, I know. That's totally it. I, I was, um, yeah, I've done a lot of work around shame and forgiveness mm-hmm. over the last few years. And, yeah, definitely there was shame. Shame about stuttering on the phone. Shame about not being able to do anything for my mom. Not not being able to do anything for my for my grandma. Shame about crying as a man. Mm-hmm. Shame about like um, not being able to save those young girls in, in in Croatia and all those other people. That was our job, right? Like that's your job, mm-hmm. and that was the mission. And we totally didn't succeed with the mission. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of shame for a lot of years, and then it wasn't acknowledged because it, it was at the same time as there was a big scandal in the uh, Canadian Airborne Regiment. Um, uh, who was in Somalia and they, they had tortured to death um, uh, a teenager there and it hit the news and the airborne regiment got disbanded and uh, and it was all over so the idea of Canadians being in a, in a battle and I mean different numbers and stuff and the, and the and the Croatians like deny it but the different numbers I've seen are you know between 34 and 40 Croatians were, were killed in this in this battle to to actually tell the Canadian public in 1993 that that we were doing this, mm-hmm. it would have been like political suicide. So it got swept under the under the rug, yeah. And it wasn't acknowledged for. Oh, I think it was eight years, nine years, something like that. Mm-hmm. So did that affect how you were able to process it, or or? Um perhaps even get treatment for the the after effects of, of it personally. Oh, totally. I was I was a young reservist. I landed in Winnipeg straight from Croatia. Yeah, we flew out of Zagreb straight to Winnipeg. I spent like a few days there, cleaned my rifle, turned it in, 
and there was no talks at that time back yeah. then there was nothing and then uh i got on a plane to saskatoon <laughs> and got picked up by my parents you know and it was and it was like wow. um stayed with them until school started and uh all my friends were such a huge mess um when i say a huge mess i mean like uh all had like these big symptoms of PTSD, but nobody knew what it was then. We weren't briefed on it. I remember getting a phone call from a friend's wife, hysterical in the middle of the night, asking what had we done? What had we seen? What happened to what happened to her husband? Like, because he was having night terrors mm-hmm. and, and uh, like significant night terrors. And I thought I was okay because I wasn't having those. Mm-hmm. But everybody's symptoms are different. You know, I, I had this, I had this crazy thing going on where I had this presence of like, I could, I thought I could hear everything. Like I could hear the bugs in the attic, for instance, like I could hear everything mm-hmm. and I never thought anything of it. And honestly, the way that me and a lot of other guys coped um, with it was just drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we just like, I made a lot of, I made a lot of money for the time um, at that age. And uh, I bought a, a used pickup truck and then the rest of it, I just, I just blew in the bar, honestly. And and uh, most of it was just trying to forget, I think, and just trying to... And most of it was hanging out with guys that I'd been over there with. I couldn't relate to anybody else, really. Friends and, like, mm-hmm. I had... Something had changed in me where they were like, who is this guy now? I was more violent. I was more um, angry. I was, like, not the same person anymore. And when I went to back to college... I had missed a year and a half through all the training and everything else. And the school was fine with me just coming back. But when I got back there, I didn't know anybody. And I was just this kind of weird dude to them. And when I left the college, I had tons of friends. You know, I was in that mode of like, hey, I'm social. And I'm like, um, yeah. And then when I went back, it was like, I totally didn't fit in. And, uh, and uh, it wasn't until recently that I that I figured it out myself that I was like, wow, it wasn't all of them because I thought it was. Hmm. It was everybody else. But what I had done is I put these great big walls up. Yeah, yeah. turn that tap off. Turn the tap, yeah. So I don't feel like a tap so much as like, is like just this armor and mm-hmm. these walls. Yeah, it was, it was like a Iron Man kind of thing, you know, just on. Hmm. And, uh, and of course nobody would want to get to know me when I'm just totally guarded like that. And, um, yeah, but I was still experiencing a lot, a lot then. And one of the things that I remember happening in the school was I was going through the hallway and the walls were just like closing in, like Mm -hmm. literally felt like I was going to get crushed. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, so I went to the school counselor and, and she listened to me and then she gave me this perform out and fill out and then I filled it I gave it back to her and she's like holy crap what have you been doing the last year like so I, we talked some more and she said well I think you have PTSD mm-hmm. but then I just left it at that like no treatment no whatever and uh, there's not even a record of it honestly from, from that period of time I just lived with it so when I when I um, uh, was in school and I just wasn't able to fit in I, I kind of like I always did I muscled through it until I finished the semester and I'm like I can't I can't keep going so I left school I joined the regular force um, 
and I just wanted to fit in. Yeah. And you know, the need, like you were saying earlier, definitely connection. I just needed connection, and I couldn't connect with anybody except for my my uh, my brothers and sisters in the in the military. Mm. So that that started that that started off with the the, the full time career in '95. I think I was 24 and, um, and, uh, yeah, that just totally changed everything. Cause I went from the infantry to becoming a combat engineer. And then in, as a combat engineer, that's when you start, that's when you deal with explosives. You're either like blowing up bridges or, or, or landmines or, or something. And, um, uh, and also diving. So it was only about a year after, after I, like I came to the, to the regiment that I, I was like, Oh, this diving thing is really cool. Hmm. And being a combat diver was kind of like a more prestigious place to be. Hmm. You got some way better kind of, um, goes, we call it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was like, Oh, and, and, and there was just that, yeah, kind of like being a celebrity a little bit, you know, yeah. like, and, but also just like pushing yourself, improving yourself. And I think I really had a lot who am I kidding? I still do. Um, I have to, I, I notice it more now. That's all is like just performance, you know, like trying to like really perform yeah. to that, to that kind of potential and, uh, becoming a combat diver, just opened up the doors to becoming a clearance diver because I never even knew that they existed. And when I did my combat diver course in 96, I came out to the Island here and to do, to do a, a two month course. <laughs> and I was like, Whoa, these guys are like, yeah, it, it was like the ultimate to me of like, of like who I could be, you know, and also the kind of man I could be in that, in that regard. So there's a lot of like great role models and stuff that really matched that, but also some humor. I think I really missed that. Mm-hmm. So there was also that, that kind of joy, but I lost my joy. Mm-hmm. over like through all through all of this because realistically i suffered hard with that ptsd from croatia for about nine ten years like i remember kind of it like petering out you know in in a way um and to the point where where um in 2008 i decided to uh, volunteer to go over to afghanistan and and that was that was in the capacity of of uh, as a clearance diver but um, bomb disposal, so all improvised um, explosive devices and like roadside bombs, uh, mostly. So of course there's no water there, you know. Yeah, um, pretty dry. Yeah, but but that was but that was the role. So it was it was kind of like you know it was uh, working in a small team. There's only five of us in this team, and two of us would operate, take turns operating, and and we'd respond to um, you know fines. People would come across like the, the infantry guys or whoever would come across what they thought was an IED, you know, in the ground, sticking out of the ground or whatever. And then we'd respond to it for, and that was for seven months. And, uh, I, I thought I was pretty over everything, like over the PTSD and over everything else. And, and, um, that I, I thought I handled it, handled it all pretty, pretty well. But I mean, when I got back from Afghanistan, I was angry again. And it was kind of like, what did we do there? What did, what was the mission? Like, what did I actually accomplish? And, you know, I had these, the empathic part of me was like looking at it and going, okay, well, 
when I took down the walls and connected with people who were from there, like the Afghan army or Afghan police or the interpreters or whoever, then it was really hard for me to look back and go, wow, they're still there. And I wonder if they're still alive. Like, I wonder if they're still doing that, that thing that they do every single day. Mm. And, and just to, uh, just to kind of know that I had this opportunity and with life and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really doing anything with it. Like in my mind, I mean, of course I was doing things, right? I, I was a dad, I was in a marriage. I was like, you know, that was my identity and I had this cool job, but um, there was something about something for me that I just, I wasn't allowed to be myself, like completely myself. And yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious about that connection piece. And, and even when you're talking about not being able to be yourself, that almost seems like a disconnect from your true identity or, or the life that you're living didn't really match who, who you truly were. And I also kind of want to get back to that idea of first going back into the military because you, you had that connection with, with the people in who had served or were serving and, and you just didn't relate to anyone who hadn't had that experience. And a question that I had was, did you have an experience, an opportunity to process those emotions and that, that pain or, or lack of connection? Uh, was it something spoken about um, with people who had similar experiences when, when you were serving or did you, did you, quietly relate and just kind of understand what one another had been through yeah more like just quietly relating i imagine it would be similar to what the legion was you know 50 years ago or more um i don't i don't know if there's really that much talk about it like hey remember this remember that like it wasn't like maybe you bring up some stuff like that but it was more about like just remember that oh yeah yeah not not actually like releasing emotions or like or like uh, a lot of that. If there was anything released, it was probably more on, on you know, more a little bit more on the violent violent side. I mean, me and one buddy that we had we had been together the whole tour. Um, we were both kind of like machine gunners in the same section, and um, you know, sometimes we'd like we'd wrestle pretty hard, mm. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> throwing each other around and stuff, and and uh, it was all in fun. But I mean, still, that was probably the only kind of release that yeah. I can remember. And honestly, it wasn't until I left the military, like, um, and I, I, I'd started a, a coach training program and I started to, well, the first thing that was different there was that everybody, everybody held me as like whole complete and, and also just as, as like, you know, in my essence, in my, in my greatest kind of self and not as a victim not as yeah and that was a big turning point because there was all these people that that were like seeing me in this different light and james was one of those people you know he he had already started his own coaching um practice and done his training and and just always held me at that at that higher kind of level you know and like you can do this you know Mm and and um and for me that was huge. And that's when I first started looking at it going, wow, like who are these people? And then later on I would, I would find out more that, Hey, these are my people, you know, in, 
in terms like in, in more like indigenous terms these are my people hmm. and what does that mean it's just it's just people who make me um not make me but support me mm-hmm. you know support me to like to be who i actually am mm-hmm. you know i'm wondering too if going back to the military where you had that deep connection if part of it too was you know all all of you are not really sharing how you're really feeling so you're able to kind of hide a little bit in plain sight you know what i mean they allow you to be able to you know continue to be the guy who looked in the mirror and turned off the tap and said no because there isn't somebody there being like man like this must be killing like this must be tearing you up inside how's it going there's no one there doesn't sound like there's no one there doing it so you're all able to connect and hide together you know what i mean Mm. and and i don't say hide in necessarily a judgmental term i don't i hope you don't hear that i just mean more repressed yeah in a sense of that mutual repression because of the trauma uh it's made easier in in that environment and then you talk about james coming along and Mm -hmm. perhaps being somebody who begins to allow a way out or a way to return to your true self yeah yeah and you know what i what i learned from from him was he had gone through such an amount of trauma in a very short period of time like he had almost he had almost died in a in a in a a diving related incident his lungs filled up with fluid and they had to pump it out for like two weeks and and then he couldn't do what he wanted to do anymore he couldn't he couldn't dive anymore and then um and he got divorced um and remember he was just like in his mid-20s right like at that at that time so um all these things and then i saw he was he was a real inspiration for me that you can choose how you want to be mm-hmm. and how you want to show up and it's not i don't think it was ever about just being just being positive like just be happy just be positive I think that's actually all bullshit. Like it's actually about being able to be with yeah. all, all this stuff. Like just be with it. Mm-hmm. Like acknowledge it, feel it, let it, let it soak in, let it come out mm-hmm. and, and process that, that, that stuff. And then, um, yeah, through all the, through all the coach training and, and, and through the mentor mentorship that I'd done afterwards, with the same with accomplishment coaching and i was just really able to go quite deep and i know coaching is not like coaching is not therapy but there's a big part of it to me that's therapeutic yeah you yeah. know and the way i'd been doing therapy on my own for a lot of years was was by doing extreme sports i mean at the time nobody was doing hardly anybody was doing like really long distance running and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this death race a couple times. Like, yeah, I, heard, I read that. What's the death race about? Is that as fun as it sounds? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it got. I think I think it's it got a lot of popularity. Um, it seems like a lot of people are doing that kind of stuff now. But you yeah. know, back then it was a very pretty small race. I think there was only about ninety, maybe a hundred solo racers, and it was 125 kilometers of running through the area around Grand Cache, which is like Grand Cache is on a plateau. So you go down a plateau, up a couple of mountains, back down. It's it's pretty extreme. I think there's something like 16,000 feet of elevation gain or maybe 30,000, something like that. It's wow. quite a bit. Let's go with 30. That's better. So we'll go with 30. Yeah. 
somebody said it's the same as Everest. So maybe it's thirty, but yeah, but I can't remember anyway. But it was it was like a very very challenging kind of a thing. But mm-hmm. what I could do is that I could choose something every year, a big race like that, death race or Ironman or or something significant, where I could train, and I wouldn't have to think about everything else. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because you you started off by saying it was like a therapy, but but repression is not therapy right no. <laughs> when when you talk about coaching as as a way of therapy it, that's that's processing that's moving past things whereas when you're just pushing yourself as hard as you possibly can and like replacing inner pain with outer pain mm-hmm. that's that's not therapy but but it sounds yeah. like your repression evolved because at first it was like loads of drinking so at least you were being active yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, you know it still wasn't one, ideal one addiction but... <laughs> one addiction for another yeah. yeah i know i when i when i look back on it you know it was like i think it's also like how people see how people see me you know like i had done two death races in a team mm-hmm. which means i ran like 20 or 30 kilometers or something like that as part of this team yeah and i remember being introduced um i was a a young uh, instructor and I was the guy that was that was doing all the physical training with the with the divers mm-hmm. so kind of like well when they when they uh when the instructor introduced me he wanted to kind of build me up so he said oh he's done two death races and then I was like hey I I didn't <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done two death races I did I was like on a team right yeah so but after that it was so weird. I had to do two. I had to. I had to do two death races after that. Mm. Right. Yeah. Solo. Mm. And then after the first one, I wasn't happy with it. I was like, "Oh, I could have gone faster." So the next one, I went faster, mm. and took like about two hours off my time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, where where does it stop? You know. Yeah. And I think where it stopped for me was like after death race, death race, Iron Man half iron man's marathons like after one another you know like just all the and then bike racing um it all stopped when that when that deer hit me you know mm. and it was and it was it was like this this moment in time where i i'm not a religious person but i've i have that spirituality but i cursed god like i was like mm. what else could like intervene with me you know doing my thing you know i'm going to world championships for triathlon in london i'm like i'm like hey this is how i defined me was this athlete i was an age group athlete i wasn't a professional athlete that's how i identified with myself at the time so i was i was a victim and i was pissed Mm -hmm. and people would like make fun right they're like why wouldn't you like how often does that actually happen where you know somebody that gets hit by a deer yeah and we chatted a little bit about this before we started recording but um describe that scene for us because um it getting hit by a deer you may think or a listener may think oh you got hit by a deer but like this was a serious injury and and huge collision so just Mm. describe it a little bit more and and this was six years ago right yeah, so it was, uh, I think, June 6th in 2013. And I I had already registered, signed up for the, the qualified for the World Championships in London, uh, in the UK. 
and that was in September and this is in June. So hmm. I was just doing like, like a, um, kind of a workup race, a really small one in, in Shimanis. Hmm. And, uh, and, uh, leading up to that, I was just, I was out for a really easy cycle the week before and 100k or so no no, no. it was really easy like <laughs> okay. I, I, I actually drove to shamanas to like just travel like the bike, uh, okay just okay. to do the bike route it was actually easy it was okay. really really easy maybe like 20k or something oh, really, yeah. yeah and uh, a friend of mine paul had, had actually been doing the same thing so we ended up just meeting up and riding together so we're we're riding along i think it's victoria road in, in shamanas and they, they have these 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 curbs that are these big right right angle kind of mm-hmm. kind of things and um but we were just cruising along nice and just really really easy i had my and i had my uh my my hands were on the handlebars but away from the brakes and because there's nothing really around mm-hmm. and then paul had seen these there was i don't know maybe two or three deer or something on the other side of the road uh, we're on the right side they're on the left side off the road and he said deer that was it and i said oh okay, yeah deer and because it wasn't really a hazard at the time. They were just, you know, standing there. And then this this one buck just just took off, like with all with everything it had. It seemed like it just full out sprint right across the road. And Paul had been riding for his hands were on his brakes. And I'll just admit that he's probably got better reflexes than me too. <laughs> um and uh he hit his brakes just because he was on my left. And he hit his brakes just in time to get a front row seat to the deer hitting me and how, how, how I felt it was, was like just being absolutely smashed. Like, Hmm. and I don't remember anything else, just this impact on my left side around my hip. And I kind of folded over, Mm -hmm. um, with my, you know, my, my back towards it and stuff. And then I don't remember a whole lot after that. And I just kind of came to on the, on the sidewalk, um, afterwards. And, when I came to the first thing was that I couldn't move my, my leg really. Like my, my knee was just, I tore, I, I would find out that I tore my ACL and my knee, I just couldn't walk on it. I could barely, couldn't barely move it. So that was the first thing that came, came to mind. And when I talked to Paul about it afterwards, cause he had that front row seat, I think it was quite traumatizing for him actually yeah. to, oh, to be like, Whoa, you know, like right, sure. right there and just miss it himself. And, uh, um, but he said I was just super lucky because the the buck had a had a big had a big rack on it. Mm-hmm. It was a you know it was like a trophy buck, and and uh, when it hit me, it hit me with his shoulder. So it put its shoulder in, and it would have hit me with his rack. I would have been probably impaled, you know, no doubt. And um, and then I remember coming to, and the deer just getting up. So it, so the deer had gone down too, but then it had got up and kind of like you know, ran away or whatever afterwards. But I, I uh, had my car in Chimanus. So I actually just got a ride. Uh, just a local guy loaded up my bike and me and his pickup truck, drove me to my car. I went to the hospital and, you know, had my knee looked at and everything. And I, I never thought about everything else that was going on in my body at the time. I was just really angry that this had happened to me. And and because uh, you're two months out from your big race yeah right? two months have, out you must have known oh, okay well that's done so i did my thing i powered through it oh did you oh totally oh, like wow. i i was back on the bike within a month oh wow so the acl um healed up on its own i got back on like a spin bike 
going slowly, barely, you know, just moving my leg just a little bit wow. and then work myself back up. And then when I got back on the bike, that's when I found out that my, something had happened in my core probably and my, and my, uh, my disc herniated mm. on me. Mm. So it was all a part of that, a part of that accident. And it was like, well, I'm not going to let that stop me either. So, so I, so I kept going, but what I did is I found, you know, different practitioners and acupuncture and physiotherapy and massage and all kinds of things to just keep me going. And I, I saw, I don't know how many, honestly. And even when I went to London to race, um, you know, I found the, the team Canada physiotherapist and he did needling and it was like, Oh, it's perfect. It could just get me to the point where I could do it. Hmm. But then after I did the race, <laughs> that was it. Like I got back on the plane to go home and my body was like, no, you're done now. Like that's hmm. it. And, uh, and that was really probably one of the most difficult things for me to actually be with was, was that, Hey, this, who am I now? Like yeah. this is, this was such a big part of my life. And it was also like a way that I could shut down mm-hmm. and not actually be with all the, th- be with all the things that I had done and seen, you know? So yeah, the, I kind of want to move forward now to more recent times, just this year actually, because the, the deer, it, it was like this enemy for me. And when I, I came to, I, I came to forgiveness and I came to, to, to a point where I was like, I could listen to the jokes about it or I could, I could be with it. And I started seeing it in a different way. I started seeing the deer as like, oh wow, this deer actually saved me. Mm-hmm. Because without that deer taking me out of the game, so to speak, then I would have just continued on doing that year after year. And it wasn't meaningful. It wasn't fulfilling. As soon as I was done that race or whatever, then I then it was like, okay, what's the next one? Yeah. And it was always that that life of like the next, the next, the next. No real purpose. Yeah. And uh, you know, doing uh, this this summer, I get it was almost exactly a six years since since the deer collision. I I decided to do a vision quest. Um friend of mine um and teacher uh karina uh, stevenson she's she's been hosting holding these uh, vision quests for for years now and brilliant brilliant teacher you know it and um also allowing me to get back to my my own aboriginal roots as metis and diving into that spirituality around that and during the vision quest you know, there's, there's uh, four days and four nights when you're on your own in the, in the, in the forest and you're not eating anything, you know, you're just fasting for that whole time and you don't leave a certain little um, area, little circle. And uh, it gives you a lot of time, right. To just be with all this, but you go, you go in with an intention and I won't get into my intentions right now around, around all of that. But, but what, what I really left with was that I, I, I connected with this deer mm-hmm. and, and the deer, when I look back at it now, I totally see it as like saving me as a manifestation to allow me to feel, to feel the emotion, to be with the emotion, to be able to break me down to the point where I could actually cry 
to start releasing that stuff from my body. Because when that deer hit me, I had so many, so many overuse injuries that I was just, there's no way I should have been, you know, at that level. I should have just taken the time off, but I couldn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't, couldn't. It, it's a stunning example of how what we see as the worst possible thing that could have ever happened to us is turns out to be a blessing or, or something that um, becomes one of the most important parts of mm-hmm. our story of of regrowth or um, t- turning our lives around or, or reconnecting with ourselves. Um, yeah, it's such a clear illustration of that, but but it does take a, a lot of time and, and a lot of processing. And earlier on, you said that there was a, a significant amount of work done with overcoming shame and i'm i was curious about it then but it was in the midst of your story Mm -hmm. so now i think this could be an opportunity to talk a little bit about how that process looked and and shame is such a a huge issue for so many people and for somebody who had carried that on for decades and and maybe since very young in their childhood how did your process look and and what were some things that you did that that others might be able to use for their their own story Hmm. there's a lot of guys and ladies that that, you know delve into the self-help kind of movement you know like whether it's with reading books you know it's usually like a first step right like reading books and and um i think that they're they're great i wrote some i read i read some books that 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 were like definitely turning points like that's when i discovered Brene brown for instance yeah and and then started looking at shame in a different way and forgiveness and but it was also at the time it was augmented with this coaching program that i was on and just having that support of people who actually looked at me like hey like you're you're a beautiful human being like i love you like Mm -hmm. being able to like live in that kind of realm was like amazing for me and i remember i was doing the program in seattle and i was coming across on the ferry i can't remember if it was when exactly but it was fairly early in the program and i was i was just about to reach schwartz bay in victoria and i was just in the outside of my truck and looking at the water and it was just this beautiful kind of morning and something came back to me i think from that was like that childhood kind of feeling of being on the lake there, you know, and having that connection right. with, with spirit. And it, and it just dawned on me right, right, right then and there. And I, I don't know why I just didn't pull over, but I basically like just cried and cried and cried. And that was probably the first time that I'd really, really cried. Mm. Uh, like I, like I said in like 30 years or something like that. Where do you think those tears were coming from? Oh, they were forgiveness. Like there's shame. I mean, probably one of the big things, one of the big things that really hit me that got it, that got it going was that when I had uh, been in Afghanistan, you know, there was a lot of training to get to the point where, where I was. And then the next guys coming to replace me had done, you know, similar amount of training. And one of the guys in particular was, was Craig Blake. And he was um, another clearance diver who was on the East coast, but we had done our, a lot of our training together. And, and, we had some we had some experiences that really brought us closer together, even though we were on opposite coasts. 
And we were very similar, I think, in many ways. But Craig came to replace me, and which is really cool. You know, you're being replaced by like a, a friend of yours. And, uh, and there were a whole bunch of different circumstances at the time. Uh, I don't know if you remember the Icelandic volcanoes erupting, and, and it, it basically deterred all of the air traffic, mm-hmm. right, for all that time. So he ended up coming late. So I didn't have enough, I didn't have as much time with him as I would normally have. And I remember having this conversation going, okay, I can stay and I can like, you know, do some more mentoring with you before I go. Um, and I remember him and his partner saying, well, no, we got this man. Like go, go with your, you know, go home, get to your family, you know, don't, you don't. So I did, you know, and, but there was that, I don't know if it's the empathic part or if it's just like mm-hmm. the, the intuition and not trusting that intuition, but I, I thought I should stay, but I didn't. I mm. kind of succumbed to like the pressures of like getting home from my family, and you know my team was like, "Well, hey, well, let's we want to get out of here together so that we can do our." Um, there's some decompression they call it before going back to Canada, and and uh, I was like, "Okay," so I made the choice to to leave, and went to Paphos um, for a few days and then and then back to Canada. And when I landed in Edmonton, which is where we, we came out of with the, the battle group came out of, it was a cold morning. It was raining, like quite heavy. And uh, we were not in the main terminal, but in a little kind of sub-terminal. And somebody... Oh, it's my one of my guys, Kevin, came to me and he said, "He said, Smitty, you need to see this. You're not going to like this." And he kind of took me and he into the into the main building and they had a laptop set up and it was they had the MSN homepage and it was Craig Blake killed by by an IED. Hmm. And that was like that was that was a time in my life where I just you know I just cried. Like I remember being out in the rain and just by myself, you know, and just like bawling. Mm. And then I called my, my wife at the time, um, to tell her that I was, you know, back and, and I think she may have already heard about it, but I'm not, I'm not sure. And then it just allowed me, it gave me permission to just cry some more, but I had a lot of shame about leaving early, you know, like I held that responsibility as like, well, I could have done something, but I don't know if I could have done anything. Maybe it would have been me too. You know, I don't know. Mm. Um, but it was, it, it, yeah, it was a, another significant kind of moment. And when I cr- when I got off that ferry and I bawled my eyes out on the way home, it wasn't like a, it was it was like the tears just came in like buckets. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was such a release of emotion, of shame, of just you know all these things that I held in. And I think that was really the, a big start of like the healing journey. Um, yeah. One, one thing I was, I've been thinking about is this boy who, who, who connected on such a deep level spiritually on the lake. And then you reconnected later on when you, when you were by the ferry, you, you saw the ocean had that reconnection. And then I noticed at the moment of the deer, um, you used, you went away from the word spirit and said, I'm not really a religious person, but you know, at that moment, I just felt this rage towards 
I wonder if it was almost towards that same realm, you know what I mean? Like before it was such a place of peace and then all of a sudden now in this, it was, it was almost seeing it as a male- malevolent force, like taking something away from you. And mm-hmm. I wondered, I wonder if there's a connection there at all or if, or if that thing that you were cursing in that moment was the same entity that you were, that caused, that brought you so much peace or was it something else? You know, it's very similar to when I was in Croatia in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And I, because I, I remember then too, just being like, there's no way that there could be any God mm-hmm. who would allow this kind of stuff to happen. Right. Because it was, you know, it was absolutely, especially in the day, you know, I think we're desensitized a lot more now with the movies and everything else, video games and stuff. Um, but yeah, just that feeling of like, of like, um, but it's a real victim a real victimy feeling, you know, of, of something's happening to you. Right. So I think that a big, a big shift for me has been around taking responsibility, you know, and being, and, and owning the things that I've done in my life, hmm. you know, like owning, okay, I would, you know, I, am, am I responsible for the, um, for my breakup of, of my marriage? Like, you know, owning those things is like, um, Sorry, I just got distracted because there's a hummingbird outside, but um, <laughs> I probably wanted to get distracted too uh, on a on a more sensitive subject. But but it, it, you know it, it's like the only thing that I realized that I really wanted in life at a certain point I can't remember when exactly it was was that I wanted to feel, mm-hmm. and I don't think everybody gets that. Yeah, they're like, what do you mean? Well, I just want to feel. I want to be with. I want to feel all of it. I want to feel that sadness, and I want to feel that grief, and I want to feel the joy. And something that Brene Brown talked about that really um, resonated with me when I was first listening to her was something she said about about the the ultimate vulnerability. The the ultimate vulnerability is like pure joy. Yeah, you know, like when yeah. you when you can like like there I am now on a dance floor. You know, like just by myself and just like letting, letting go. <laughs> like that's a part of me that never existed. Like, mm. you know, three, four five years ago mm. or more like never. But I shouldn't say that. Cause I, I can think back to, you know, being told stories about when I was a little kid mm-hmm. and I had that joy yeah. in my eyes and in my smile and just this, Ooh, you know, this mm. wonder and joy. And I think that the deer in its in itself gave the opportunity to actually feel again mm. and to experience life in, in in a way that's more meaningful and fulfilling and with purpose and uh and when i when i did that vision quest and i had asked my my teacher karina for a medicine name I, i've been working with her for a while and i said yeah i think i i, I think I, uh, i'd like to you know and she said, well, I, I never know how long it's going to take, right? So I may not get it like right away. And, mm-hmm. But I, when, I, when I came back from the vision quest and I was called, I was called, called, uh, called forward by, by, by her, um, she called me by my medicine name and she, she named me Deerheart, mm-hmm. which, which was uh, even, even more special to me because I had gone through that experience with the deer yeah and uh and it was like yeah just i'm just absolutely blown away by how that 
experience is different now or the perception of it mm-hmm. is different where wow that deer saved me yeah. it spoke to me it manifested itself and like came to life just hurt me enough to take me out of that game that I was playing so I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe I'm just kind of crazy talking, talking like that. But then no. I'm like, no, this is my true. This no. is my, this is my true, sure. my, my truth now. You and, know? and you know what? It's possible that you could have just not listened to the deer, you know, like you didn't at first, but just kept not listening mm-hmm. and the sense that it could get worse and worse. Maybe it wouldn't be a buck next time. It might be something bigger. And just this sense that things continue to happen to us until we get the point. So perhaps there is the, the spirit we talk about or the universe. There's this, there's this sense that something's wanting us to become our full selves mm-hmm. and it's and that's about the most generous way of getting us to change is through the pain right because we don't listen <laughs> yeah with, with our ego like the only way we listen is with pain or humiliation well that's me anyways and uh and so once we finally do listen then then we're like the guy on the dance floor mm-hmm. with, with joy in his eyes again right yeah. i really like how you brought humility into it because that's i think that that's been one of the greatest teachers for me yeah and uh yeah when i when i when i think about embracing those things embracing the vulnerability mm-hmm. and the humility it's yeah it definitely makes space or creates space for for the joy yeah for someone who's who's served on the front lines and has has really had the full experience which either john or i have have that reality in our society today, there there seems to be with as you mentioned with with movies and video games, and we're kind of desensitized. And there's even somewhat of a glorification of war or combat. And I understand that there are times where it is serving, protecting our freedom. And what is your stance on on war and combat after having those experiences? Hmm. I definitely challenge. I challenge my my truths a lot more. I, I, I and I challenge the truths that are out there. Uh, one of the great contributors is by not just being in the coaching kind of um, tribe or the you know being with those with those people. It's like all the different tribes that I've become a part of, and and. Um, one of those tribes is is at Royal Roads. I'm taking a master's in global leadership and and doing that work and you know, given given like the the space to say, Hey, you have an opinion and we want to hear about it and looking at all the things that are going on in the world and war being one of them, you know, it's like it gives me the opportunity to challenge my own beliefs. Like, you know, when when nine eleven hit and I um or happened and I, I remember driving to work at the time and then hearing it on the radio. So I was on the Malahat driving to Victoria and then I got to work and then we had this all on the big screen and we, we were all just like gathered around this thing. And we, we all knew that everything was changing right, right then and there. Um, and at the time it was like, yes, there's, you know, there's, this is a terrorist threat. It's against this, you know, this, and we need to, we need to do all this. So I had friends at the time who went on the first rotation to take the Taliban out of kind of out of the government in Afghanistan and to kind of go through those caves and clean up all, you know, and get rid of all the explosives and, and everything else. And then it was like done. And then it was like a few years later that, you know, 
went back is it was like, well, there's this country that's been left alone for 20, 30 years at least, you know, since the Russians first went in there in 78 or whatever it was, and then abandoned it. And so it's just been left, right? So it's like, when I went to Afghanistan, I was like, well, I really, like, my idea is, hey, we're rebuilding this. It's not everybody's idea. Some people are just have that glorification of like, hey, I, can, mm. I want to get a confirmed kill. This is what I do for a living. This is what this is how I want to prove myself in life. I just want to get a confirmed kill or more, or, you know, several, or whatever. And I think at some point I was in that in that place, and I don't know how to how to describe it except for going back to that idea of the masculine or the male role model and going, okay, this is what it means to be a man, right? Mm-hmm. You're a warrior. That's what it means to be a warrior. Warrior to me now means something totally different. A warrior for me is when you live that authentic self, no matter what you speak your truth, you live your truth and you, you know, that's a warrior to me. Um, when I look at nine 11 now, I look at it different ways because I, I challenge things, right? There's like, they're looking at the buildings that came down in New York and they're looking at it going, okay, well, how did this one building come down? That was, I think they call it building seven or something like that. And it's like, Hey, is like, what's behind that? the building collapsed like a dem- like a controlled demolition like straight down mm-hmm. but it wasn't anywhere near the 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 towers like it by all rights um shouldn't have come down you know they're studying this and going and there's a ted talk on it and i'm looking at this ted talk and i'm and i'm and i'm i'm challenging my own beliefs like what actually went down you know what actually happens in politics in economics on a national level on a global level you know, and it's not like I want to get into conspiracy theories and all this stuff. It's just that I find myself now challenging more right. and more and more. And um, as far as warfare goes, you know, like when I think about about a world war, like stopping naked aggression in the first world war, second world war, it's like, okay, something has to be done. We can't just not do anything. Mm-hmm. But then there's a power balance that, you know, when I challenge those ideas now, I'm like, yes. And that started like a power balance globally of, hey, the United States has their, their play, they're, they're holding the card now. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened when, you know, they started creating uh, NATO and all these other different organizations, trade organizations to, to uh, after the Second World War. And that, you know, to trade, the idea was, oh, we won't fight if we're trading. And, but then we created this kind of economic kind of way of being yeah. where everything revolves around it. And then the United States had given all this power basically um, because of their, because of their influence in the war. Well, and so you have the freedom to challenge now because obviously you couldn't do that back when you were in the military. No, I would never <laughs> even thought like that. Right. And, right? And, and you can't, you can't just, eh, is that the way we want to go about this? You follow orders, right? Yeah. But now, now looking back, you're able to challenge some of those perhaps ways of doing things and ways of behaving. Something I'd like to maybe go back to just as, as we bring, <clears throat> as we bring things to a close is the mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, the mirror was a pivotal part of your life as a 12 year old and, and making that decision, what you saw in the mirror, you didn't like you turned off the tap. So I thought I'd like to ask you what you see in the mirror now. Mm-hmm. To say that I'm fit and I'm through my journey, spiritual journey, or this, it would be a total lie. I think I just started it. Mm-hmm. So 
what I see in the mirror now will kind of vary day to day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There are some days when I still look at myself in the mirror and I have that shame, but I have the, the tools and I have the, and I also have the support, you know, that, that I can fall back on and say, and get some, you know, just get somebody to talk to or, or anything like that, you know, but then a lot of other days I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm just, I'd say most days I have a morning kind of a ritual that I do, you know, where I, hmm. I, uh, I pray and I, I smudge and I, um, mm-hmm. I just, I get connected with, with this, with spirit. I get connected with myself and, and there's a lot of gratitude in that. You know, up, up till a week ago, I would have had no idea what you meant by smudge. I'm oh. not sure if Andrew knows what that's about, but oh. I participated in something like that about a week ago, um, where you burn um, you burn something and in, in the smoke you, mm. you um, allow it to come in contact with you and things like that. Maybe you could explain it a little bit better than I just oh. did, but yeah, it was it was a very it was a very cool experience. Yeah. Well, a smudge is using sacred medicines, and it's a uh, I mean it's in indigenous cultures. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. whereas. Uh, these these sacred um, uh, items are like sage, mm-hmm. um, cedar, and uh, tobacco, and and normally um, Palo Santo uh, from Peru. Um, and yeah, you'll just you'll you'll, you'll burn these, and um, it's a cleansing. The mm-hmm. smudge is a cleansing. So, you know, most of us think of uh, cleansing in the shower, but it's it's a spiritual cleansing, and. Uh, and the physical practice of, of of doing that through your through your body is 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 like it actually goes into your soul and into your mind and you know it it, it washes through and it gives that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just kind of want to digress for a second. I remember when I was in the army and we had these three year engagements that we'd signed contracts for, and my boss Chris called me into the office once, and he said, "Hey, here's your." new contract your next three years and i looked at it and i wasn't sure if i was going to resign right and he just looked at me and he said oh is there something better to do or do you have something better to do and i was like "Uh, not really and it just Hmm. that memory what it does is it it just reminds me to always think of what there is like have something better to do yeah like you know like give Mm -hmm. yourself the opportunity yeah you know, to actually put yourself in those positions that may be uncomfortable, but at least you can grow and, and learn. And, um, yeah, like I never knew how I do doing a master's degree. You know what I mean? Like I was a college dropout, right? Like how am I going to do? Um, but like what a, what a, what a great kind of way to just grow and learn. So without giving the, I I guess what I want to say is for people listening anyways, without creating those opportunities you know there's it's not that there's no room for for growth it's just that there's like a way way more increased room for growth when you're stepping outside for yeah. sure. of what you normally do that's potential yeah well we started the conversation by kind of in jest saying that you're the most interesting man in the world because of all the the amazing things that you've done in your life and and it was um such an honor hearing your truth and and i think a more appropriate term and 
and by by all means it was very interesting but um i see you and what i learned from you is um that you have chosen to be the most important person in in your own story and have fostered that connection with yourself and and allowed yourself to to find that authenticity and uh i really truly appreciate you sharing that with us today and, and sharing it with um our listeners and uh yeah it was a, a great honor and, and privilege and and um it's been been a true pleasure thank you thank you Wayne. well that's the episode thanks so much for tuning in everyone we appreciate your time and attention if we can make one request please subscribe how do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm-hmm. For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.